Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And you can find today's guest writing about and talking about movies all over Philadelphia, but especially on the I Like to Movie Movie podcast. Garrett Smith is here. How's it going, Garrett? Pretty good. How are you, George? I'm doing really well. Why don't you uh, tell the, the good people at home a little bit about your show? Uh, I Like to Movie Movie is a podcast where me and my co-host, Dan Scully, uh, really just talk about movies. We, talk, we pick like one movie every episode and just kind of dig into it. We like to talk theme and meaning, um, and uh, there's no particular like uh, actual theme to the show. Like We just watched um, The Taking of Pelham 123 as our most recent episode, the, the 1973 movie, I think. That is the year of the original. Um, but then we also, like, we interviewed um, the director of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, <laughs> a couple weeks before that. So um, you can find, like, all kinds of stuff on our show. Uh, and it, uh, it's fun. Yeah, you guys uh, jump around, but it's all very fun. Uh, you guys keep it pretty light. Uh, I liked your Burbs episode. You know, I'm, I'm oh, always yes. here to uh, see Tom Hanks in a horror movie, you know? <laughs> Heck so. yes, dude. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, and that episode um, features... The uh, co-writers of Summer of 84, which is right. uh, heavily influenced by the Burbs. Yeah, uh, and so. uh, another fun movie. So, uh, Yes, yeah, yeah. I definitely encourage people to check out that episode of your show. Um, oh, man, thank you so much. Uh, do you, are you guys, I mean, well, really you, but um, are you guys both like into horror, would you say? Yeah, very much. Uh, so my co-host Dan is like a, just like a genre nerd, like going back his whole life. Um, and and I, I kind of am. I, I was more of like a science fiction kid. I was you know, really into Star Wars, but uh, also just like, uh, you know, like sci-fi movies in general were like kind of my thing growing up. I didn't get into horror until a little bit later in life. Like I, I, I kind of really came around on it like in college, just after college. Um, but now it is like most of what I watch and, and write about. Uh, it, it has yeah. become kind of my... <laughs> I, so uh, we on our show, you know, the, the title is mostly just a joke. I like to movie movie. Um, but we, we do talk about this concept of movie movies on the show occasionally, which for us us we define that like horror movies kind of are the best example of movie movies it's a movie that is just utilizing like every little inch of the genre of movies to tell its story and so where movies are like this collection of you know light sound performance it, you know it's just it's, it's using every little piece of that to its fullest extent and i feel like horror movies are always like a great example of that yeah i Definitely agree. Since you say that you were sort of a sci-fi person growing up, do you yeah. find that you still skew that way when you're uh, watching horror? Like, You know, it's funny. I, I don't actually. I heard you ask people this uh, on some other episodes of your podcast. And, and for me, like, as I've sort of, like, come into my own as a horror fan kind of later in life, I have found myself gravitating towards slashers more than anything else. That's kind of my big go-to. I love slasher movies. One of us. One of yeah, us. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> I like Friday the 13th was a series that I that that I got like heavily into maybe like 3 or 4 years ago having never seen any of them. Like that's uh, I have like huge holes in my my sort of horror nerddom, you know what I mean? And I've been sort of trying to like fill those over the years and and so I did like a big Friday the 13th watch maybe 3 years ago or something and I just totally fell in love with that series. Series. And from there, just kind of bounced around to like all of the famous slasher franchises. And not that I've seen them all yet, but like I, I just, I don't know, every time I watch one, I get like more and more into it. And now I've caught up with like some of the weirder stuff. Like I always refer to it as Fall Break because that's what it was originally called. But uh, The Mutilator, is that what that goes by, right? Yep. Um, the Mutilator rocks. Like I, I just have been getting into all all corners of, of slasher movies lately. 
Yeah, that's awesome, man. Honestly, I think that one of the joys of coming to the genre later in life is being able to have more of a sense of what's good and, you know, really dive in and explore the genre. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, well, so I, I kind of want to respond to that in two ways. This is why every podcast I'm on is like 90 minutes because I'm like, oh, I have four answers <laughs> to this. Uh, but like, on one hand, like, I, I do like kind of totally agree with you because like um, I saw Black Christmas for the first time in college and like I liked it. But I didn't really appreciate that movie until I saw it again, like many years later. And now it is like one that to me is like one of the defining slashers. I love that movie. Yeah, it's great. But then the flip side of that is like I have also living in Philly become like a big exhumed films head. Do you uh, go to their shows? Are you familiar with them? Uh, No, I'm actually not familiar. So exhumed films is this group in Philly that does screenings of basically like exploitation movies from like the 60s and 70s and 80s. I'm listening. Uh, And they they collect like (laughs) 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter prints. Of those movies wow. so they do these like crazy so they do the 24 hour horror marathon every year oh, okay. where they just screen horror movies back to back for mm-hmm. 24 straight hours um, but again all on 35 millimeter a lot of like hard to find stuff like I saw I just listened to your Shin Godzilla episode today it was fantastic I got to see a version of Godzilla that's like extremely hard to see from the 70s that Luigi Cozy sort of directed wow. um, it's sort of referred to as Cozilla by the fandom but anyway so it's like I have also gotten into a lot of terrible shit. You know what I mean? Like, I also like a lot of kind of bad horror movies as well. I have, like, I think coming to it later in life, I actually have a wider appreciation for it, if that makes sense. Like, I, I can appreciate both the really good stuff and the bad stuff for all of what it is. You yeah, know? that's awesome. Yeah. I, I have a couple of questions. We're going to, we're diving into the movie here now. Yes. We're talking about 2018's Mandy directed yes. and co-written by Panos Cosmatos, uh, amazing name. Yes, who, yeah. Uh, he also wrote, directed uh, 2010's Beyond the Black Rainbow, and he's also Indeed. the son of George Cosmatos, director of such hits as Cobra and Tombstone. Yes. Which Panos actually was the second unit video assist operator on, so that was his I big I think break. I knew that. What, and hold on, real, before we move off of this really quick, I want to look up George, because I forgot to look him up right before this and I just watched like a movie or two that he directed recently and so I want to look him up really quick I apologize that I'm taking the time to do this in the middle of your show no no problem while you look it up uh, I'll say that uh, Tombstone kicks ass (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. But interestingly, there is some debate about how much of it he actually directed. Um, you know, a lot of people say that Kurt Russell had a huge hand in directing it, even though his name is not officially on the directing uh, slate. Because And I feel like that's one of those things that kind of like goes around Hollywood about him in general, mm-hmm. right? That he, he tends to take a little bit of control of, of some of the movies that he's a part of. He does. And the original director of Tombstone got fired in like in right. the middle of it. And so when George was brought on, Um, There was a certain element of Kurt Russell having already been there and understanding sort of the way that things worked on set. So there's been varying levels of um, confirmation about this over the years. But, uh, you know, I, I certainly think that it would be impossible for a director who has done some pretty great movies like Cobra um, to, you know, be on set and have zero influence on a movie. So, Well, and here's what I'll say about that, because now I'm looking this up, and I, here's the two movies I saw of his recently. Rambo First Blood Part 2. I saw that for the first time this year. And Leviathan, the, like, underwater sort of alien ripoff movie sure. from 89, uh, which I liked quite a bit, actually. That movie was really fun. But I think you can kind of tell from his career that I could kind of see why you might hire him to take over Tombstone 
alone Mm -hmm. when perhaps an actor was becoming difficult to sort of get the movie made under because he had worked with Stallone prior to that. Like he, you know what I mean? Like he seems to be used to working. And my understanding is Stallone is another one of those guys that kind of conquers whatever movie he's starring in, you know, Sure. which immediately then my brain just went to wait, they starred in a movie together, which must've been a nightmare to make. I assume (laughs) take over cash right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that probably was hell. <laughs> yeah. I also see here that uh, George directed an episode of Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater back in 1995. Well, there you go. Bring it yeah. a full circle. Yes, indeed, indeed. Yeah, so I am also a fan of Panos' father. I, I think he actually made some like pretty cool, interesting genre movies himself. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, uh, Panos has kind of become a, a favorite of mine. Yeah, and he's part of this new uh, Greek weird wave, I would say. Um, Okay, wait, hit me with that. What is that? Define that for me. So, uh, George Lanthimos, uh, Yorge, uh, as he's Mm. affectionately Mm -hmm. known, is sort of at the center of this. And he's the guy who did um, Dogtooth, Killing of a Sacred Deer, The Lobster, and The Favorite. And sort of after the financial crisis in Greece, this new film wave sort of sprung up where there's like an intense sense of detachment and surrealism to it where the people act in just these really bizarre ways that creates kind of an emotional alienation between you and them. Um, Mm -hmm. And the, like just the scenarios are usually like impossible or or at the very least implausible, but presented Mm -hmm. as grounded like mm-hmm. we're going to turn you into a lobster if you don't fall in love or yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. your wife is kidnapped and killed by a cult. And now you're on a drug and revenge fueled murder rampage. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Indeed. Got it. I think it's a really interesting wave of film that's coming out sort of at the same time as art house horror wave. And I think that they kind of share a lot in common in terms of the focus on aesthetic and color Mm. with maybe less emphasis on communicating the story in a unobfuscated way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say, like, having listened to your podcast a bunch now, you often go through the the sort of plot beat by beat. And I almost I, I was thinking to myself, like, that is going to do a weird disservice to Mandy, although I'm actually excited to sort of talk about Mandy in that way. because yeah. I, I think it's going to be rare that I'll ever have the opportunity to go through it beat <laughs> by beat like that. Um, but it is a movie that is much more, in my opinion, about its its feelings. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a movie that communicates with me not really on like a, a plot level and, and not on like a, even a narrative level necessarily. It, I feel like this is a movie that is mostly about mood and atmosphere and, and the way it communicates with you through those things, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The way that I describe several of the things in this wave, but particularly Mandy, is sort of like a tone poem. Um, yes. where it's it's really, uh, like you say, you just sort of let the emotions wash over you and mm-hmm. uh, and you absorb the movie that way. And everything else, you know, if you're getting stuff out of the story and everything, that's just icing on the cake. Yeah, I, so I watched this again. Uh, I watched Mandy yesterday. Yeah, yesterday afternoon. And I, I, di- I didn't even realize it actually, but it was the fifth time I've watched it since it came out just two years ago. Wow. I, I bought it on Blu-ray like, Right when it was available. I saw it in theaters too. But so anyway, so like I've actually seen it like a bunch of times and I don't do that that often in general. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. rewatch certain movies over and over and over again. I used to when I was younger, but I don't do it that much anymore, especially with newer stuff. And um, this one just, I don't know, this movie casts some kind of spell uh, and, and I just... I don't know. I love watching this movie. I, I, I just sort of fall under its spell every time. Yeah, and I think that it's really interesting that this movie does kind of get its hooks in you that way because it's produced by Spectre Vision, which I think that 
um, that company does a really good job of picking movies to produce that do something like um, for people mm-hmm. who aren't familiar with them. Uh, they're the production company founded by Daniel Noah, Elijah Wood, and Josh C. Waller, and they've made movies, uh, a lot of weird, smaller horror movies, like Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which I've definitely mentioned on the show before. The Greasy Strangler, which is one of the weirdest and f- most fun crazy movies i've seen in a very long time um that has been on my list to see for a while oh my god it is crazy and uh this year uh, color out of space is one of my favorite movies of the year so far and yeah loved that movie and they produced that as well and so you know really capitalizing on these weirdo scripts you know i love that elijah wood is uh is really taking a chance on some of these weirdo horror uh, horror movies and uh giving them a chance to shine yeah, man, he's like the best. Yeah. Like he, he, he's like I don't know. When I think about just my how much I you know love watching genre movies and thinking about the idea of like man, if I had the opportunity to just like fund somebody's movie, like find a creator I like and let them do their thing, I would love to do that. And I love that that is just what he's made a career of over the last decade. Yeah, you know? he's living the dream. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> And they made this movie for just uh, around $6 million, which is really shocking. It is. (laughs) I mean, every penny of that is on the screen in this movie. Oh, yeah. And there are several talented actors in it, including Bill Duke, Andrea Riseborough, and Linus Roach. But let's be honest, this movie stars Nick Cage. (laughs) It sure does. This is not a term that I necessarily invented, but I love using it. I mean, this is definitely one of the uh, crowning achievements of what what I like to refer to as the cage exploitation genre. (laughs) He, He just, you know, he's made a career of kind of what a lot of people would call overacting and stuff, especially over the last like, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And to me, one of the beauty, beautiful things about Mandy, for one thing, I love Nicolas Cage and don't think that dude deserves to get the shit that he gets sometimes. But Panos is one of very few directors that has found a way to get both Oscar winning actor, Nicolas Cage and the, you know, he, he refers to himself sometimes as the California Klaus Kinski. Like, both versions of Nicolas Cage are in this movie. Yeah. You know? And I think it's a it's a very rare filmmaker that has been able to figure out how to synthesize both of those versions of Nick Cage. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I am not only a Nick Cage apologist, I'm an active defender. <laughs> Agreed. Yes, I'm right there with you. <laughs> and uh, I think that it's to Panos's credit that he managed to do this because I think that Nick Cage is really just like a force of nature and all yeah. you can do is just point him in the direction and and work around what he's bringing because he he is a movie star in the way that I think that few people are these days you know you have Tom Cruise where you know that's the name above the marquee or that's mm-hmm. on the marquee and you're like wow this is a Tom Cruise movie and I think that you get that with Nick Cage as well where it's a Nick Cage movie yeah, I mean, these movies bend around these performers, right? right. As opposed to the other way around. Yeah. Um, and I do think you can feel that in this movie. Um, I mean, specifically, I don't know if you have this in your research, but like he wasn't even offered the role of Red initially. Right. They wanted him to play uh, Linus Roche's character. Jeremiah Sand, yeah. Yeah, Jeremiah, which makes a lot of sense to me that, that Jeremiah would, would be this older weirdo, right? Yeah. Um, and, and kind of is in the context of the movie still. But I believe Pano said that his, his sort of original concept for the character of Red was like a younger man was not somebody of like Cage's age or even build or anything like that, you know? And, and so then Cage says, yes, I want to do your movie, but I, I like the character of Red. 
And so the movie bends around, you know, <laughs> Cage's desire to, to play that role in the movie. And ultimately, I think, to the movie's benefit, you know? Yeah. I I, I saw that he, he had said that um, Panos actually, like, put the movie basically on hold <laughs> while yeah. they argued about which role they were going to play. Uh, eventually, Cage was able to convince him that there were parallels in the theming between Red and Cage's own life, especially when right before the movie started filming, Nick Cage's 14-year marriage to Alice Kim ended very abruptly, in his opinion, Mm -hmm. and he said that it was a real shocker, and he didn't see it coming, and that these feelings had to go somewhere, so they went into the performance, and I think that that feeling of, of shock and abandonment definitely comes across in this performance. I think it's an amazing transference of real life emotion into the character. Yeah, I when I saw this in theaters, they played a Q&A with him and Panos afterwards. And uh, for one, it was hilarious. And I'll, I'll tell you some of the things that Nick Cage said in it a little bit. But one of the things he said, I think, was also that the loss of his mother was like weighing very heavily on him and, and is something that influenced this performance a lot, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I think that... That, uh, Panos had a similar thing where like both of them had uh, had you know recently lost their parents and so when he mm-hmm. was he was writing it that was definitely part of uh, what influenced him as well yeah, that's so. very interesting so one of the other things that Nick Cage said was uh, at some point uh, whoever was interviewing them asked him like if there was a role that he had always wanted to play and I swear to God this is how he started answering that question he so they said what role have you always wanted to play and he started his answer by saying well I've always loved the ocean <laughs> As if he was about to say he's always wanted to play the ocean. He eventually gets to saying he wants to play Captain Ahab, basically. But he started the answer with, well, I've always loved the ocean. Listen, as much as I could buy him as Captain Ahab, I would like to see Nick Cage as the ocean. Uh, are you kidding? Of course I would. I would watch him try and do anything. That's the other thing is so like he he refers to himself as the California Klaus Kinski now and, and spends a lot of time in interviews recently talking about how he is really obsessed with like German expressionism. Mm-hmm. That's like his kind of favorite genre of movie. He loves like Metropolis and it's stuff great. like that. We talked about M on this podcast and it's a really amazing movie. Yeah, well, and when you hear him talk about that and then you think about his career and how he, people like to make fun of him for kind of like overacting movies and stuff and you go like, I mean, it, it is like a choice that he's making. Mm-hmm. It's like a decision he's made to perform in that manner, yep. um, which made more sense when movies were silent and, and we couldn't use things like dialogue to communicate e- emotions and stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, but I also think it's one of the things that makes him a remarkable special actor is that he does choose to still act in that manner, despite being in, in you know, sometimes fairly grounded movies, although he's also capable of being like a more grounded actor, too. Yeah, I agree. I, I saw that another one of his influences is Kabuki Theater from Japan, which, again, right, yes. is very, you know, over the top. It has these big uh, drum beats behind it and face paint and stuff. and, and Very performative mm-hmm. and gesture-based, right. you know? Yep, and yeah. uh, I think that that seeing both of those is is very clear in a lot of his performances. Although he is able to, like you say, turn it on and off. I guess you could say these these performances are still pretty performative, but they they feel I don't know more restrained to me. But but movies like Leaving Las Vegas and an adaptation, there's there's still big performative stuff going on there. But he is able to like ground characters in something too, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I, which I think actually is is one of the things that he does very well in Color Out of Space. He he actually grounds that father character in a way that makes the transformation into a more cage exploitation character all the more shocking, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely in conclusion, this is yes. a cage <laughs> yeah. performance if ever there was one. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my god, yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. When you get to the the last hour of this movie, he he give you they fulfill the promise of the sort of Nicolas Cage revenge movie. Absolutely. Right? And also, I mean, last thing before we move on from Nick Cage, but he really is yes. incredible in this. And also, um, this came out right around the same time as uh, Mom and Dad, which was another Dude. Nick Cage horror movie. So he was really dipping his feet into the genre, which uh, you I... know I love to see. I love Mom and Dad. Yeah. Have you seen Mom and Dad? Yeah, I have. It's a lot of fun. It's a blast. <laughs> I think that movie is super fun and actually has like kind of a nice little message at the end about parenting. Mm-hmm. So, I, uh, yeah, go. I quite like that movie. Go check out Mom and Dad as well. <laughs> yes, agreed. And uh, this movie was also dedicated to Icelandic composer Johan Johansson, uh, who died oh in February God. 2018. R.I.P. Uh... R.I.P. He did an incredible job on this. I mean, from minute one. That score kicks in, and there's like fun synths and stuff, and it's fast paced, and you know you're in for a ride. I love this score. I own it on vinyl. It was like the first thing I bought from the movie as soon because I think it was one of the first things that was available. Right. But I also just was seeing this on the big screen. That score is like so big and loud sometimes. It really it's like a sleep album basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you, this movie honestly feels like somebody just tried to take Dope Smoker and turn it into a movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it, it has that kind of sound quality to it, but it also has, there's a beautiful melancholy to that score. That's always how I describe it. I have very melancholic feelings when I watch this movie, and a lot of that comes from the score. There's a real, you can tell that someone that was experiencing a lot of heartbreak wrote the music to this movie, I think. Which, you know, I do think unfortunately turned out to be, like, too true. You yeah, know? I mean, it, not even just in the score, but the way that they utilize the song that plays over the titles as well, King Crimson Starless. I mean, dude, yes, so moody. Um, it's oh, it's playing over this pan over the top of forest with the, mm-hmm. this dusky color, like. God, incredible way to set the tone when they open it up. You know what my favorite thing about that opening is actually is just before the actual King Crimson song starts, there is the sound of swirling electric guitars for just like five to six seconds. And when I say that, I mean like that, like someone just sort of noodling really fast. Right. You know, like <laughs> it's just like this. This tip of the hat to like, this is the most metal movie you're about to, you know what I mean? Like you're about to dive into some heavy metal shit. Yeah. And then and then that breaks into the opening of that King Crimson song and sort of reveals itself to be like, again, like more melancholy and heartbreaking than the promise of just that heavy metal sort of opening, you know? Definitely. Um, which I love. I love the the marriage of those things. It's It seems impossible that it would work as well as it does. It also blends that sort of uh, imagery of music and death that we're going to be getting um, yeah. with the text that appears at the very beginning as well when i die bury me deep lay two speakers at my feet wrap some headphones around my head and rock and roll me when i'm dead this is not confirmed by panos but it appears to be a reference to the last words of douglas roberts a man who was executed on 420 2005 and it's pretty metal (laughs) yeah it is pretty metal pretty metal date to be sentenced to death to be honest like right off the bat yeah (laughs) And so, like I said, we get this panning over the forest, and we see Nick Cage, who, as we said, plays Red Miller, a logger near the Shadow Mountains, which is East California near the Mojave Desert, Mm -hmm. which I did not know. I had to look that up. (laughs) Me neither. It's got a very nice, and they they use the title cards, I believe, specifically for this reason to give you this feeling, but it has the feeling of like a J.R.R. Tolkien uh, location, right? Yeah, absolutely. The the Shadow Mountains, 1983 A.D., it sort of, t- again, tips its hat to like, this is a D&D heavy metal campaign, basically, uh, about heartbreak. <laughs> yeah, and in addition to being like full of stars and, and the way that it's written feeling like a, like a book, the way that it kind of intersects the movie into 
it feels like chapters basically. Yeah. So it it gives it the feeling of sort of a pulpy novel that you might be reading, like Mandy herself is reading at points in the book or in the movie. Yes, uh, Seeker of the Serpent's Eye is that what the book is called? Yeah, something like that. Uh, Yeah. So they live near the Mojave, and he's there with his girlfriend, artist Mandy Bloom, and they live uh, in a cabin near Crystal Lake. So yes, yes. (laughs) That you know what you know what's funny is. It was only when I watched it yesterday that that caught my ear the way it's supposed to. Every other time I watched it, I heard it as just, yeah, Crystal Lake and the Shadow Mountains. Like, he's just trying to give me this fantasy movie feeling, right? Mm -hmm. And then I'm watching it last night. I'm like, no, that's a fucking Friday the 13th reference. Of course that's what that is. Yeah, so I was uh, I was pleased to hear that. And um, yeah. Mandy is an artist who does this like crazy fantasy art, very Dungeons and Dragons esque, as you uh, yeah. as you made reference to. Uh, although she does have a day job as a cashier at a nearby gas station, which is not quite as glamorous, but you know you got to yeah. make the ends meet. <laughs> Well, and watching it last night when the Friday the 13th reference finally clicked, I realized that her sort of job is li- like she uh, she has an encounter with the doomsayer at, at the gas station mm-hmm. at Crystal Lake. You know what I mean? That's like essentially what that, that scene later in the movie is. Sure. Plus, I mean, doing it at a gas station is pretty much uh, a trope in and of itself uh, between Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yep. Cabin in the Woods making reference to it, you know, yep, yep. Uh, exactly. so all kinds of stuff there. And we do get to see some of her, some of her artwork, which is very cool. And um, it is cool. It's this is inter, this is intercut with Red uh, driving home, while yes. a speech from Reagan plays over the radio. Yeah, but a return to yeah. uh, family values, a spiritual awakening, and the return to the bedrock of traditional values. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, Red turns it off, and. Mm-hmm. I think that we really start to get like a picture of who Red is, not only from him turning it off, but I think that that back to basics work with works with his hands, lives in the middle of nowhere, and as we know, is on the cusp of an awakening, albeit one that he won't enjoy very much. Well, and so here's a thing that, and I'm excited that we're going to do this beat by beat because I think I can maybe work with you to sort of play out this idea I had about the movie, rewatching it recently. There is a really quick shot where he gets on like a helicopter. To be like lifted out of where they're cutting down trees, right? Yeah, He's, logging. Right? And uh, a guy tries to hand him a beer and he waves it off. And I actually get the impression just from that little moment, and then a moment we'll get to a little later in the movie, that I think one of the unspoken things in this movie is that he and Mandy might be in like recovery together mm-hmm. and have sort of like run off together from like a past life of, of uh, uh, perhaps like more more problems. Yeah. I kind of get the impression that they've like absconded to this very small life out in the woods from something potentially worse or more troubled. Uh, Yeah, I definitely get hints of sort of like recovering alcoholic, uh, especially from him. It's obvious that uh, Mandy has severe trauma. I mean, she jumps like five feet when Red says knock, knock from the doorway. Mm -hmm. She has a big old scar on her face. She tells this story about her dad who was clearly psychotic. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we're killing the starlings. But you know what's interesting about that story, too? Well, and we'll, we'll get there, uh, I guess. But one of the things that's always interesting to me about that story is the way she tells it, it's like that thing where it's like it's so normalized uh, in some weird way in America for, for like, I don't know, like a blue-collar dad to just be like a little bit mean and a little bit violent mm-hmm. and to sort of 
I, I don't know, even that idea of like, yeah, I got the neighborhood boys together and showed them how to kill an animal. You know, like, yeah. I, I don't know. There's something weirdly normalized about that in America. And I think that that scene is very much about how obviously sick and abnormal that actually is and how weird it is to live in a country where we normalize things like that. I think there's a lot of that like running underneath this movie. And also, I think that there's a little bit of questioning about confronting our own role in that. Yeah. It, it, the way that she hesitates when he asks her what she did, it makes me feel like I'm not positive that she tells him the truth about running away. Well, and I, I also think even if her answer is true, mm-hmm. you know, she ran away. Right, she instead of stopping people. She didn't stop it. She right. ran away. And I, not that I, I, I blame her for doing that necessarily, but, mm-hmm. but it is an interesting, I think the movie lets that moment hang for exactly that reason, yeah. for us to sort of think about that response. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of why I get the impression that they may have run away together to this place. Mm-hmm. That story is one of the reasons I kind of think, I, I think she may be relating something there that we're meant to take more out of than just that story, you know? Sure. She also reveals that her favorite planet is Jupiter. And yes. uh, <laughs> and Nick says that his is Saturn before switching it to Galactus. Shout out to my yep. X-Men adjacent fans. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, what's uh, what's your favorite planet? Uh, oh, my favorite planet. Boy, I can't believe I didn't expect you to ask me this question. <laughs> God, it's I always know, the man. simple ones. Yeah, probably Mars, just because there's been so many cool uh, like movies and stories set in on or around Mars. Sure. Uh, I think that mine is probably Saturn because I think the rings are neat. They are neat. You know what? I can agree with that. This is not the only time, uh, or it's not the first time that this is noticeable, but the lighting and colors in this movie are just incredible and vivid. I mean, the normal scenes pop like crazy. Like, there's some great colors going on when things are uh, ostensibly normal. But on top of that, they use these non-diegetic Mm giallo-type deep reds and blues to highlight important stuff and, and create drama. And it's really spectacular plus they do these like swirling sky moments um oh i love it, it, it it's just really incredible uh, what, what do you think about this um non-diegetic color like do you think that it takes you out of it or is this something you enjoy oh no well i love it so and i don't know if anybody that is listening to this podcast is familiar with me in the first place but i write about uh pop tarts a lot uh, which is going to sound weird but i'll explain it uh you know wildberry pop tarts they're like they're like the blue and purple frosting right that is my favorite movie aesthetic is okay. any movie that looks like a Wildberry Pop-Tart, <laughs> which there's a ton of, you know, the most famous example recently is probably that shot in Blade Runner 2049 when he's looking up at uh, the the big hologram of joy. Right. Um, and it's all, it's like super pink and purple and stuff. Color Out of Space is, is a very Pop-Tarty movie. Um, the John Wick movies get very Pop-Tarty at different times. Um, Mandy definitely has a Pop-Tart aesthetic to some extent. Giallo movies in general, I I think of as very Pop-Tarty. So anyway, I have an obsession with that sort of like uh, visual aesthetic. So this is like right up my alley. It does not take me out of it at all. I really love the way, again, that sort of allows me to get in tune with like this movie's vibe, right? Which mm-hmm. I think you need to. This movie is working on frequencies. It's not working on stories and narratives and right. stuff, you know? Um, and, I, and I think things like those sort of, uh, as you're referring to it, like non-diegetic color schemes uh, like help with that, I think. Yeah. I agree. I, I think that instead of taking it out, it actually helps to pull you more into the world of Mandy. Yeah. Well, and it also, I think in Mandy in particular, because eventually you get to those like really non-diegetic things like these strobing green lights mm-hmm. on some of the objects and stuff. And I think, you know, uh, in my opinion, Panos wants me to be like, well, why the fuck are you doing that? Like, what is that? Mm-hmm. Like, you're imbuing that object with some kind of power. Why? To who? Like... <laughs> What does that mean, you sure. know? And I really like that. And, and I like that the movie does not necessarily 
offer me like direct answers either that that it just lets that stuff out there for me to sort of you know kind of chew on and on a little sure bit. just a little bit of emphasis on it not yeah, a yeah. not a direct answer yeah yeah so on her way to work mandy is walking past uh, to go to this gas station and it's this really incredible like ethereal moment full of slow-mo and red light and shifting focus mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. and Mandy walks past this van carrying the Children of the New Dawn, which is a uh, a hippie cult. The coolest fucking title for the, like the dumbest fucks in the world. <laughs> and uh, they're led by a real Charlie Manson type, uh, oh, Jeremiah yeah. San. What a fucking hilarious character! I mean, also terrifying, but mm-hmm. like a hilarious character. He's such a slimy piece of shit, and also like that version of a man that where he's so openly pathetic. Yeah, you know. Right. And he's uh, he's struck by Mandy's beauty and yes. uh, he orders one of his disciples, Brother Swan, to kidnap Mandy. And mm-hmm. uh, he's like, Brother Swan, do you have the horn of Abraxas? Yes. <laughs> oh, I love it. And, and then he pulls that out of the bag. And that's the first I think that's the first instance of that, like green strobing mm-hmm. light. Right. Yeah, it is. And it's this stone oak arena. Like, it's yeah, fucking yep. dope. Yep, it's a fucking Zelda prop. It's like I love, you know. I feel like you can just feel Panos is like, you know, he's he's a child of the '80s, like we are, and mm-hmm. it's all over it. You yeah, know? and the the thing that really helps, I think, is that if they had even smirked a little bit when they pulled it out, this whole movie would have just fallen apart. But the fact that they take it completely seriously and they're like, "Yes, the Horn of Abraxas," <laughs> you're like, "All right, I get it. We're in here." <laughs> Dude, I agree. I mean, I think this is one of those movies where one of the things I love about this movie is like the first time i saw it and maybe even the second time i saw it it was like a very funny cage exploitation movie to me to some extent you know mm-hmm. but now when i watch it like I, I almost don't i do still find it like funny and entertaining and stuff but it's like such a sad masterpiece to me now mm-hmm. you know and because there's so much of both of those things going on throughout it but that is i do love that like Within the context of this movie, they the all of these characters are taking things like the Horn of Abraxas very seriously. Yeah. But in an hour, we will tear some of that reality down, which I love too. Right. Like where we'll just be like, Yeah, these are just fucking acid freaks that have like <laughs> totally lost their mind. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they, they'll they'll destroy some of the mysticism around this within the context of the movie too, which I think is so interesting and and kind of part of what I love about the movie. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what the green light is for, ultimately. Like, uh, if we want to break that down, like, I kind of think it's just like, look, these people imbue these objects with power. They are silly, stupid things that mean nothing. Right. But these people believe them to have power, so for them, they have power. Right. It's just an instrument at the end of the day, but they give yeah. it a dumb name like the Horn of Abraxas, and they use right. it to summon these insane uh, demonic biker gangs, and all right. of a sudden, right. it's the Horn of Abraxas. <laughs> Yes. Yep. And it's like, and then, you know, I think the movie is maybe walking a little bit of this line too of like, so at the end of the day, then what's the difference? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. whether you think it's actually got some sort of supernatural power or not. Whoa, man. Yeah. I mean, it does summon these fucking demon bikers that murder a lady. Like, it's, so what's Mm -hmm. the fucking difference? It sure does, and uh, and that's exactly what they do. They go out to the lake. Brother, uh, Brother Swan, let me say, this guy is creepy as hell, man. He's got, like, slow Dude, lizard blinks. One of the, like, quiet, great performances in the movie, I think. Yeah, and uh, he uses that horn and the sacrifice of another cult member to get the help of the Black Skulls, a demonic biker gang with a taste for human flesh and a uh, highly potent liquid form of LSD, and... Let's talk about these black skulls, man. We got yes, please. spiky arms and blood on face guy. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. We got spiky armor guy. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. got high collar and fucked up mouth guy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
the covered face and claws guy. And oh boy, I saw someone refer to them as Cenobikers, and I think that that's <laughs> a, a really great phrase for it because they really have fully embodied this sort of Hellraiser aesthetic into their person. Yeah, I mean, when when uh, when this movie came out, there was a big call for, hey, if you're going to do a, a Hellraiser reboot, like hire Panis Cosmatos. And I, I think it's definitely because he just so very clearly took inspiration from that movie and the design of those characters, you know? Yeah. Um, which I love. I, I, I love these characters. They're I love the way they're introduced, again, with some of these like really deep red lights and stuff. Mm-hmm. These sounds they make, too. There's just these sort of roaring sound of the engines that they pull up on and stuff the way panos kind of treats the like all-terrain vehicles that they drive up on as their steeds <laughs> yeah. you know yeah, yeah. um it, it's really they cool sound like growling like the, yes. the motors um it's it's very cool yeah that's very george miller in, in particular i think oh yeah uh, some of that stuff and uh we got to the bottom of your favorite planet do you have a favorite black skull motorcycle gang member ooh, ooh, ooh. hold on i gotta think about how to answer this question because i need to not mistakenly answer the knife dick guy <laughs> have to make sure i don't mistakenly choose that one um you know i probably whichever one he beheads and then lights a cigarette on fire with that's that's probably my favorite one just because yeah. i love that moment that's a really good one. Uh, I am partial to Spiky Armor Guy because I think he looks the silliest. <laughs> yes, yeah, for sure. I believe he's also the first one he ends up killing, right? Yeah, he uh, he gets shot off the bike, and uh, but he, he does knock uh, the, the car out, so he at least gets some revenge. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true, yeah. In the meantime, the Black Skulls are indeed willing to kidnap this couple and so they break in and they subdue mandy and red and they bring them to the cult compound yeah can we talk about that abduction scene really quick sure because i think that is one of the like really really sort of impactful visual moments in the movie it's done with a lot of strobe lights but it's also the the editing in that scene is 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 pretty incredible i think yeah where sometimes the strobe effect leads us like is used as a cut between shots and other times it is just a natural strobe within the same shot. Right. And I think that it is edited in a particular way where that in and of itself becomes very unsettling and it becomes hard to know what you might see next. And that becomes kind of frightening in its own way, you know? Yeah. And that strobe comes back pretty pretty uh, frequently in some of the later later scenes, too. Yes, it does, actually. Yeah, you're right. I, I didn't even think about that, actually, that that does kind of, um, that's like a repeated imagery later in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just think that scene is like striking and also one of the, the more sort of heightened horror moments oh, in the yeah. movie, too. The, I mean, in terms of uh, a mini home invasion movie, it's, uh, yeah, it's yeah. intense as hell. Yeah, it is. So they take them to the compound and the two women in the cult, uh, Mother Marlene and Sister Lucy, wake Mandy up. She's tied to the kitchen table. And it's obvious that Marlene has some sort of resentment, some level of resentment and jealousy about Sans' infatuation with her. One of the things I like about this movie is the way these character dynamics are sort of set up and and drawn within the movie. Mm-hmm. Where, again, like a lot is conveyed without them actually particularly saying what they mean. Right. The the, the earlier scene with Mother Marlene, is that is that her name? Right. The, the earlier scene, like when when Jeremiah ultimately asks Brother Swan to, to kidnap the people, that starts with him speaking with Mother Marlene, right? That's who he speaks mm-hmm. to first. Yep. But but he ultimately just sort of is like frustrated by her and annoyed by her. Yeah. Um, and so there's definitely, they set up this kind of idea that like he's a very Charlie Manson guy, right? Where it's like he, he goes through all these different women, different ones are sort of special to him at different times. So they then latch on to him and sort of, grow to resent him but still desire his 
uh, approval, like all of that kind of stuff that really, really fucked up sort of like male manipulation shit, you know? Yeah, sure. I mean, later on when she talks about how uh, he told me I'm the most uh, sensual lover he's ever yes. known and stuff, like, you know, that sort of, um, it's like the dentist system. <laughs> Yes, yeah. like. Well, and you can see that she has a real jealousy of Sister Lucy. Is that is that how they yep. refer to her, Sister Lucy? You yep. can see that she has a real jealousy of her. You can see that Sister Lucy has probably been the victim of kidnapping, where Mother Marlene seems to more just actually be into Jeremiah, right? That's the impression I get anyway. The, the younger woman seems to be more traumatized by this. Yeah, she does the Russian roulette thing, but she definitely seems more like deer in headlights. <laughs> yeah, well, and the Russian roulette thing, I really think she connects with Red in that moment and Red realizes that she was Mandy uh, in the past. Right. And that's why he, uh, uh, for these people, that's why alert. he spares her <laughs> later. Yeah, that, I think that's what's going on there. I think we're meant to think that she has been kidnapped and traumatized by this and is just, she's not drinking the juice. She's She's been forced in, in, into that, right? Right. But so then you have Mother Marlene who has this like extreme jealousy of this younger woman that Jeremiah really just uses as like a sex slave almost, you know? Right. I really like the way the movie is able to illustrate a lot of those dynamics without having to um, have anybody explicate any of this. Yeah, it, uh, it is really incredible the way that they do that. And I think that a lot of that is to the actor's credit as well. Absolutely. The cast in this is phenomenal. Like uh, when you were saying before that it's like this is very much a Nick Cage movie. I fully agree with that and know what you mean by that. But I also would not want to discredit any of the other nope. performers in this movie because everybody is really turning in some like phenomenal work throughout this. It's in this moment where they are drugging Mandy with LSD and venom from a giant black wasp that I am oh. upset to know exists. <laughs> oh god, dude, that might for me that might actually be the most horrific moment of the movie. It's awful and she like she just is so deliciously into it, being like, "This is I call this the cherry on top." <laughs> like, it's yeah. it's really great performance, and uh, it's so good, great. yeah. Uh, and again, it's like I believe that all plays into this dynamic she has with Jeremiah, where yeah. she's aware that she's had to kidnap this woman because Jeremiah is into her, and that means he's not as into Mother Marley, right. you know, like all that stuff. So she's taking pleasure in this light torture of this woman. And so Sand is a failed musician. And he says that he's a better version of the Carpenters, which is laughable. <laughs> Do you like the Carpenters? I also think, though, that it's very interesting that, uh, obviously, I think there's a pretty direct correlation between the Carpenters and Jesus, a Carpenter. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, and so, you know, when he's he talks later about how he's God and how God speaks to him and uh, told him to take anything he wants, there's definitely a certain element of, oh, I'm I'm bigger than Jesus. Well, one of the things I like about Jeremiah as a character is, as I said, he's like very funny in how openly pathetic he is. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways in which he's openly pathetic is he is one of the only characters that explicates things all the time. But it's because what he's explicating are his insane rationale for why he's able to behave the way he does. Right, and this he's resentment that he has. Yes, he's clearly a person that is, I think to some extent, feels the weight of the guilt that m must come with living a life like he does. And so is constantly like saying out loud to everyone, no, 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 I'm allowed to do this because I have been granted permission by, you know, he's like, he's have, he's rationalizing for himself more, more than anybody else, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very interesting to watch him so pathetically have to constantly remind himself and the room out loud that he's been granted permission to, <laughs> you know. 
Yeah, and uh, and so he 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 tries to seduce Mandy with his psychedelic folk music playing in the oh background. Oh my god, <laughs> this is maybe the scene of any movie this decade. It's incredible. This scene is incredible. It is at once abhorrently horrifying and so fucking hilarious yeah. in how pathetic this guy is. You know? Yeah, I mean, it does that really interesting swing where. Like you said, he's talking about how God has told him to take anything he wanted, but it's this really freaky long shot on his face uh, where her face is slowly overlaid on top of his while he's talking. As if they're like morphing into one another in some way or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the like the shot where like you if you look at their mouth, it's like moving and not moving at the same time because it's the two faces overlaid on them. It's it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Like because it is such a simple trick, really. Mm -hmm. Right. But 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 done in such a precise way that gives it this crazy psychedelic effect and and just, again, brings you into the. The sort of feeling, the the experience of this moment for these characters, you know? Right, there's that. I mean, there's also the, like, image trails and uh, after images yeah. as they walk around the room. And he's trying to, like, he gives her this huge speech. And Mandy just laughs in his face. She ridicules it's... him while he's standing there hanging dong for everyone to see. Yep. I mean, that that is, uh, when I said this is the scene of the decade, that is pretty much exactly precisely what I meant. Like that moment yeah. where she just cackles in the face of this just unchecked, unbridled, entitled male ego. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that that adage of, like, uh, I, I forget exactly how it goes. What is it like? There's some adage like that about, like, a- any woman that's ever laughed in the face of a man has, has wound up dead. Mm-hmm. Something to that effect. Right. And I, I think that is such a, a brilliant illustration of, of that, that unfortunate fact in reality about women's lives. He is in- entirely unimpressive. And, you know, the she laughs at him and... He's surrounded himself with this cult to the point where this is a a murderable offense that she laughs at him, that she doesn't just accept him and and agree that he deserves her. Uh, She doesn't owe him anything. And so when she laughs at him, this I mean, he's he flips out. He starts screaming at people not to look at him, members of his own cult and everything. She fully damages his ego, right? Like mm-hmm. he he is drank his own juice <laughs> so much <laughs> that he feels comfortable like stripping naked in front of this woman only to be laughed at. It's like he his ego is so inflated and then so quickly deflated, you know? Yeah. Just by the laughter of this woman and it's like it's such a powerful image to me. I I Man, do I love that moment. It's really great. And uh, in his rage, Sand stabs Red, who's tied and gagged with barbed wire, which is fucked up. <laughs> yes, but also he uses, uh, I forget what they refer to it as, but that knife that... Uh, it's like the tainted uh, blade of some abyssal yeah. lair. It's a and d weapon. <laughs> yes, exactly. And they do the green light thing again on it, again, because for these people, there is power in this object. And then he stabs Red with it, and it's that thing of like... This is just a fucking prop knife. Like for sure that's what that is. They bought that at a at a gaming store somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um but they he Jeremiah has given it a name and a history and convinced these people that this is this powerful 
object and then on in using it to stab red like it has power right it's still a knife that fucking stabs a guy like and he again intertwines it with this christian imagery of he talks about jesus and also stabs red in the ribs like where jesus was supposedly pierced by the, the spear and whatnot yep so really this interesting blend of sort of that dungeons and dragons quote unquote demonic influence and uh um you know this uh, hyper-religious uh, imagery that, that he's utilizing from more mainstream religion um, is really interesting. Well, sure. I mean, it, to some extent, it's like, think about, you know, the, the satanic panic of the 80s and right. how things like D&D were actually, like, wrapped up in that for some stupid reason, right? Parents being afraid that D&D had something to do with Satan or whatever. When the reality is the, the true monsters are these, like, sort of Christian cults, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, this movie is just sort of, like, very on the nose being like, yeah, I mean, the, the, the real monsters of the world are, are these freaks you know these these jesus freaks right the fundamentalists who uh you know when things don't go their way burn people alive and tie them up in barbed wire (laughs) yeah it's like i alluded to they also burn mandy alive in front of red and um boy this scene is really fucked up it's very intense the different reactions of all the cult members is fascinating Mm -hmm. as it Mm -hmm. like hits each of their faces as she burns Mm -hmm. um Really intense stuff, and after nothing but ash remains of Andy, or yeah. Andy, Mandy, <laughs> um, Sandin, Sandin and his group leave, and the rage on Nick Cage's face is just so intense, even through this barbed wire gag. Yeah. Um, like, his eyes, there's just so much pain in his eyes. Dude, the, I mean, this is the thing where it's like, you know, the next hour of this movie is about to become the, like, revenge exploitation movie you want it to be, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But it is so grounded in this first hour that certainly has a lot of, like, very expressive over-the-top moments and stuff, but is really about Mandy. Like, Mandy is very much the focus and central force of the first hour. Red kind of takes over the movie, obviously, in the second hour. I do think there's an argument to be made that it's like, oh, great, same old revenge story. Like, a woman's got to die for a man to be motivated to, like, do a thing or whatever, right? And I, and I, I can actually – I can hear that criticism with this movie and I think is a, a sensible criticism of this movie. Yeah, definitely valid. I also think very few vengeance movies do I feel the specter of that loss like I do in Mandy – through every second of the proceedings that follow. Right. And I think a lot of that is because of how it gets grounded in this particular scene through Cage's performance, you know? Yeah. This is grounded. This isn't the full rage cage that that we love and, and are going to get, you know? Right. Th- this is really some, some, I don't know, there's something real happening in this scene that, that comes through there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's interesting in that two of, I think, the more interesting examples of this sort of worn out trope of a woman dying to motivate a man are the John Wick franchise, which you mentioned earlier Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and this movie. And I think that they really are opposite sides of the same coin um, where first of all, Keanu Reeves has experienced a lot of loss in his life as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that he's also drawing from a lot of uh, real life stuff, but where John Wick is very um, cold and impassionate in his uh, murder spree, this mm-hmm. Nick Cage performance as Red, you know, obviously beyond the symbolic implications of his name, is it's pure passion. It's pure fire in this performance. Yeah. And I think that, you, like you said, you, you see that here. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I think it's on full display here. And, and I think were it not for this scene, the rest of the movie 
maybe would become just pure exploitation silliness, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But I think this kind of grounds a lot of that in in a pretty special way. Yeah, and uh, so he frees himself, he mourns over her ashes, and he goes inside, falls asleep, exhausted and in shock. And this is when we meet a horror icon for a new age, <laughs> the Cheddar Goblin. I was like, please don't blow by Cheddar Goblin. How no, are you going to leave Cheddar I Goblin? Would never. Cheddar Goblin, a goblin who vomits what is essentially Easy Mac onto his victims slash beneficiaries. 60% more cheese. Number one three years in a row. It's Goblin good. Come on. <laughs> Uncle Ched, I love this guy. It's, man, do I love this sequence. I, when I saw this in theaters, this was kind of, you know, the movie is very somber, I would say, up to this point. Mm-hmm. And this is when it it really goes into, like, full overdrive and becomes the heavy metal movie that you you, you want it to be. I know that sounds weird to say that the Cheddar Goblin sequence is where that starts, <laughs> but I, I, it kind of is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But I think in the sort of in the sad tragedy that it, that I do think this movie ultimately is, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep hammering that home that like as much as it's fun, it's also this like this great tragedy. But I, what I love about this scene is like he literally crashes out right like this horrible thing has just happened to him, and then he walks in to just see like ultimate capitalism on display basically. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that there is no there's no mourning for what has happened. The the world is still moving on in its disgusting capitalist ways, which. Are, are sort of illustrated here through just like literally the the mascot is is barfing its product <laughs> onto uh, children, you know? Absolutely. I think that that absurdist nature is part of what makes this, uh, in addition to the surreal moments, part of uh, why I feel like this definitely falls into that Greek weird movement. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because this is like a weird, this feels like it's out of like the Too Many Cooks sketch, you know? Right, well, yeah, um, so it was directed by Casper Kelly, this commercial, who made oh, Too Many <laughs> Cooks uh, short for Adult Swim. Of course, all right, so that makes sense, yes. I, I totally get the feel of that off of it. There you go, perfect. Uh, mission accomplished, Casper. <laughs> yeah, of course, which feels like it should be outside the tone of this movie, but uh, it, I think it's not because of how it does kind of fit into this weird tragedy that's that that is still here within these weird frames, right? Right. And I mean it also the way that it segues into this nightmare that Red has where it's it's animated oh, yeah. and it's the flesh rotting off of Mandy's skin. I mean that it I don't want to say like, "Oh yeah, that's the kind of shit you see on Adult Swim," but it does <laughs> necessarily feel like it could it could be there. It could be yes. on Adult Swim. <laughs> absolutely yeah and so that sort of transition i think definitely works and he wakes up from this nightmare which certainly would be uh, additionally traumatizing yeah he puts back slash disinfects his wounds with the bottle of (laughs) vodka yes which he pulls from like behind a bathroom sink this is where i also think that we are meant to uh, i think he's sort of subtly giving us clues that uh, Red is a recovering alcoholic, and I, and I think that's one of those clues is yeah. that he pulls that from – he's hidden that from himself for just such an emergency, basically. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the way that he puts it back by, like, yeah. rubbing his throat. Grabbing his throat, yeah. Certainly uh, experienced, to say the least. And th- this big camera move is one of my favorites in the movie, too, where it's this very wide shot of what I assume is a set, but like a bathroom, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and as he – chugs more the camera kind of swoops in on him in this interesting way and also kind of like tilts back and forth a little with like kind of its own feeling of almost like drunkenness you know yeah it's one of my favorite camera moves in the movie just because i think it's like so evocative of what is going on with cage's character and his performance like that the camera is 
sort of doing a dance with him and his performance. I, I, I really love that. Yeah, and I mean, he's howling in agony, grief, rage, oh, yeah. all of these emotions that yeah. are you know coursing through him, and you really feel it. Yeah, th- I mean, to me, this is like some award-worthy Cage stuff, yeah. you know? These these particular scenes of him kind of letting out the, the rage of what's happened. He t- dresses his wounds, and he goes to fetch the Reaper again. It's interesting that uh-huh. this is this sort of tactic of giving things a name to imbue it with power is not yeah. something that's only utilized by the cult. Correct. Which is really interesting. And in in going to retrieve this thing and knowing what it's called already and seeming to know the purpose of its use. Very quest-like. Yeah, well, also Bill Duke says, like, I never thought I'd see you back here or something like that. Like, there is an implication of a past of Reds here, I think, Mm -hmm. that I don't totally understand. But I get the impression this man has a violent past of some kind that this has driven him to return to. Uh, you know, his, his Bill Duke is doing a great job here. He's his friend Carruthers, so and he provides him with these freshly crafted arrows and uh, a <laughs> warning about his odds and <laughs> and information about the Black Skull. Very quest giver, <laughs> absolutely sort of, um, sort of tactics here. And according to Carruthers, the Black Skulls. Uh, so this, yeah, this is the moment, like you said, where they sort of break down this mythology where. He says that the Black Skulls were just drug couriers who turned murderously sadomasochistic after Mm -hmm. they got drugged by a bad batch of LSD. Um, And so you said you like that they get like an actual backstory like this? I do, because to me, what is interesting about this movie is the depiction of Jeremiah is that he has created a mythology that he uses as like a rationale for his behavior. uh, And in doing so, creates a cult, basically, like people sort of follow along with that. Right. But then within that movie, we also have people that go like, yeah, but that's still all bullshit. Like that, like we have people calling the bullshit of that, that this movie is not so much a fantasy film that it believes any of what Jeremiah is delivering, right? It's it's all bullshit, including these black skulls who really are just fucking fucked up acid freaks. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I like that idea that, like, it, it demystifies the occultism of Christianity, in my mind, is yeah. one of the things that's, that's happening there. I will say that I didn't like it the first time that I watched the movie, but yeah. coming back to it and really understanding it, like you said, the first two times I watched it sort of as an exploitation movie, and, yeah. um, and then being able to come back to it with more of a critical eye, I think um, it is a really interesting choice, and I think that the deliberate nature of it really forces you to read into it. In that way. Yeah, I mean, because in my opinion, I don't think it ultimately destroys the sort of fantasy elements of the movie, while at the same time is pretty specifically doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I can still, I, I am still able to buy into this as a fantasy story if I want to, but I also like that. I could also read, you know, it's like the Blair Witch is actually a, a good example of this of a movie where it's like, is it supernatural? Maybe. Is it not? Maybe. You know, that's the yeah. best answer I have right. for you. Maybe it's all supernatural. Maybe it's not. And I kind of like that this movie uh, is able to walk that line. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really cool. Red, uh, he sets off on his quest, basically. <laughs> he uh, forges yeah, yeah. a battle axe. Dude, which... the, the, I mean, the, such a great fucking scene. Yeah. Uh, the, the Probably the best musical cue in the movie, too. And it's insanely cool. And, I mean, not only are we getting cool music here... This is 75 minutes in. We finally get the title card of the movie. 
Yes. Really cool differentiator. It's this yeah. elaborate metal ass logo with, you know, spiraling veins off of the word Mandy. And uh, yeah. it, I mean, it's really cool. And, you know, we've seen movies do title cards at the end, like right at the very end before. But mm-hmm. kind of breaking up the movie this way, I think, is really interesting and, and uh, relatively unique. I can't think of anything off the top of my head that does something like this. Maybe somebody would immediately go like, "Well, Tarantino, he's got the the chapter breaks and stuff like right." right. Like we've we've certainly seen chapter breaks, but what's so interesting about this is that like you think they're chapter breaks initially because the you know you sort of get two different titles that are not the title of the movie, mm-hmm. but then one of them just is the title of the movie, right. and it's seventy five minutes into the movie, you know, yeah, and and you sort of realize like, well, okay, so I guess they're not chapter cards. They're I don't know. It's it just it does it is unique in that way where it's like. It does just drop its title about halfway through the movie. Yeah. Uh, and makes me wonder if Mayhaps is that, like, the name that he's given his battle axe. And yeah. that's why it comes at this particular moment. Right. It's certainly, at the very least, it's uh, done in her honor and uh, yes. sort of the dedication. It's 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 cool stuff. And he sets off. He tracks the bikers. Uh, he shoots one with his crossbow, uh, yeah. which, like I said, this is... Uh, spiky armor man <laughs> uh-huh. yep. and he tries to run him down but he his car goes off the road because spiky armor man shoots him or like shoots the car with a shotgun and uh, well he's all, he's a he's a big bulky dude too oh, right sure. i get the impression he just straight up drove that car onto his armor and it flipped over <laughs> <laughs> i mean it, that's certainly possible as well it, it's he's he's a big guy and and while it's true that they are just like fucked up people it does seem on some level that they're like buying into their own mythology and it it, they have some level of superhuman strength like it feels like they did sort of get transformed even if it's just because of their own sort of placebo effect of buying into it totally agree with that that and that's kind of what i mean about like the way this walks between fantasy and and not Mm -hmm. you know where it's like i could kind of buy into either explanation of these guys you know his car goes off the road. He gets taken to their hideout, um, and Red manages to break the pipe that he's cuffed to and kill the biker who is beating him up. And um, while he was searching their hideout, he comes across another biker who was watching porn and doing coke while wearing the razor strap on from Seven. <laughs> yes. Yep. And there's like a really disturbing shot of a, a victim of that as well as uh, yeah. Red is making his escape. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, uh, fucked up. <laughs> Yes. Fucked up leads to a really pretty awesome fight scene, though. Oh, yeah. He he tries to take him out all stealthy-like. Yes. But it winds up being another straight-up brawl. And yep. when the razor strap-on gets stuck in the floor, it leaves oh, this man. guy's throat wide open for a box cuttering. Oh, my God, yeah. And then just, like, this this to me is the first, like, really big crazy cage moment mm-hmm. when he just, like, gets the blood in his face and kind of, like, screams and smiles through it. Yeah. But there's also that great line a few, a few minutes before where uh, when he's still strapped to the thing uh, and the guy, like, cuts his shirt and he goes, that was my favorite shirt. Yeah, well, so that line had never really stuck out to me until... I was watching at the very end, which we're going to jump ahead a little bit here, yeah. when he's like flashing back to the first moment that him and Mandy met. That's the shirt that he's wearing. Yes. In fact, this shirt is worn by both characters multiple times throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, there are also scenes earlier in the movie where Mandy is wearing that shirt. And so it's like, you know, that thing where your girl is wearing your your favorite shirt. And that's part of what makes it your favorite shirt. It's like sometimes she goes to bed in it or whatever. Yeah. You know, like, again, it's another object that has like meaning and power. Uh, it, again, it works on in two ways where it does work. It's kind of just like, oh, it's a, a silly line for him to say. And ha yes. ha ha, Nick Cage. 
but yes. also it like yes. genuinely lends a lot of character to this moment. And uh, I agree. Like I I uh, I wrote a review of this movie for uh, Cinema76.com, one of the sites that I write for last year at some point. And uh, one of the things I said is that like the the sort of cage exploitation movie here is actually like a big Trojan horse, I think. Mm-hmm. And I imagine Panos would be like delighted to hear that people are coming around to this. That like I I do think he probably enjoys the cage exploitation movie he made mm-hmm. and is happy to deliver that for us. There's obviously some joy taken in a lot of those moments, but I do think it's sort of a Trojan horse for more of the tragedy that's actually uh, underlining almost every one of those moments, you know? Yeah, it is, I will say, a gleeful Trojan horse, though, because yes, he absolutely. he continues by breaking the neck of another biker and doing a mountain of cocaine. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's also, it's got that great snap zoom and zoom in on his face when he breaks that guy's neck. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, and he goes into, like, a, a, a martial arts pose, and, yes. and it's it's fantastic. And uh, It's amazing. He, he finds his axe, and he does some of their tainted LSD, and it causes yes. him to instantly and severely hallucinate. Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, his face literally melts. Seems to affect the proceedings of every minute of the movie after that as well. Right, because he envisions a radio tower. Yes. And uh, he, he seeks it out. He finds the chemist there. Correct. Uh, a mysterious drug manufacturer who tells him where to find the cult. Uh, yeah. And there's a tiger, too. Her name is Lizzie. Yes. I love this scene where Cage says absolutely nothing, but the chemist sort of he intuits. Gets it, man. Yeah. Yeah. He just, yeah. He's like, oh, you're so right, man. And then he lets <laughs> Lizzie go. You know? Yeah. But then he has that great line where he says, what does he say to him? He says, you exude a cosmic darkness. Oh, yeah. Do you see it? Oh, he yeah. He asks him if he recognizes. That there is this cosmic darkness to him, uh, and well, and we get we get to see it manifest yes. when it looks. He looks down at his feet, and he's got these thick black millipedes or whatever they are, yeah. going buck wild at his feet. It's disgusting. <laughs> yes, uh, and and so I, I you know, I, I don't I don't want to jump ahead of myself too much, but I do have c- kind of a, a little bit of a theory about maybe what this movie is like about, and I think that that line is is of particular importance to it. So, so keep it in the back of your mind and we'll, we'll, we'll circle back on this as we get deeper into the movie. Uh, also just a little fun fact. Um, Lizzie was called Lizzie because it was supposed to be a lizard up until he arrived on set. And he's, and Pano said, surprise, it's a tiger now. Wait, what? <laughs> I thought that was absolutely hysterical. And, um, they said that it was a delight to work with, but that was a, a shock to be certain. That is so funny. <laughs> And so he's he's still on the hunt now that he's gotten this other clue. And so Red, uh, he rests one last time. He gets another crazy animated dream. And after he wakes up, he heads to their makeshift wooden church that's, like, in the middle of a quarry. And um, Red kills Brother Swan in this yeah. just absolutely brutal way where Swan is taunting him. And Red mm-hmm. just shuts him up with the point of the axe and just, like, leans on it, puts his weight on it until blood just erupts from Swan. He just, like, drives it into his esophagus. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, another scene that I just fucking love. I, I like that when this movie decides it's going to be gory and heavy metal, it's metal as fuck. Oh, yeah. I mean, even the next couple kills, we get a sick yeah. axe throw that kills uh, the character Hanker. One of, yeah, I keep saying my favorite thing in the movie. <laughs> Definitely one of my favorite things in the movie. That just that because it just happens so fast too. It's yeah, just, 
It, I, it does. It comes out of nowhere. And get ready for one of my favorite things in the movie. Uh, he fights brother Klopek in a chainsaw duel, the likes of which hasn't been seen since Dennis Hopper in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Totally agreed. Definitely what it's a reference to and absolutely delightful to watch. I love the way that scene is like lit. It's like these silhouettes with these big chainsaws. Like Yeah, but the one chainsaw is enormous it's so yeah i mean if you had a doubt about whether this movie was about unchecked unchallenged masculinity (laughs) and the way dudes with tiny penises need to like control a bunch of stuff to not to feel better about themselves (laughs) like it's all right there in that image yeah i I really do think that it, it sums things up pretty pretty accurately yeah and nick like we said he does nick red spares the life of sister lucy yes and he he goes through the tunnels under the church and he finds mother marlene Ooh, i want to i want to stop you really quick because one of my favorite images in the movie and this is just a thing i love in movies is the church itself mm-hmm. i love triangles in movies oh, yeah. don't really know why but i just like seeing triangle designs in movies it's the most powerful shape is that true in, in terms of uh, stability yeah yep yep yeah pythagorean <laughs> theorem I, I know math Um, Yeah, I I love the way triangles look. I especially like them when they're used with, like, religious imagery because I think there's something very, I don't know, like, culty built into triangles for some reason, you Mm -hmm. know? And there's, like, this great shot of, like a very like sort of pink light coming through the cross and the tri- that is within a triangle. It's just like all of my favorite shit in like one image in a movie, you know? And so Mother Marlene is down there in the in the tunnels and yes. she gives this speech about how would you believe I was quite beautiful once and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and how she was once the favorite and how things change but oh I I lick at the rocky waves, the rock hard waves and it's like yep. All right, Mother Marley. <laughs> she uh, she says, uh, I anticipate my lover's every move. <laughs> She's yeah. going for it. And um, yeah. Red is not having it. He uh, decapitates her after she <laughs> tries to seduce him. Wait, but I love the way uh, Panos uh, delivers this information to us, which is we've just seen a bunch of violent deaths for each of these people. We see her try and seduce Red. We know we know Red's not going to take that in the first place. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. We can also read it on on Cage's face in the performance, but it just fades to black. We don't really see the resolve yeah. of that scene until Red then just a moment later, you know, emerges from a different cavern to find um, Jeremiah and just throws her head at him. <laughs> it's a uh, it's great. It really shocks Jeremiah too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. This is again where some more of that strobing comes in as um, the sa- the scene fades in and out while Jeremiah pontificates there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. In in that in that same way that I was describing before, where we sometimes we're actually cutting to different shots, other times the, the it's a fade in and out on the same shot. It's just very unsettling. Yeah, and uh, Red paraphrases Joseph Campbell here, and he says, "The mystic swims where the psychotic drowns. You're drowning. I'm swimming." Yes really interesting it seems like he's sort of found his own religion of violence of vengeance um in turn and, and the way that he's approaching this and he feels like he's been set free by this and that he's now the mystic that's very interesting i like that that read on it that's, yeah that's that's interesting because so my take on this and this is why i want to go back to that exuding a cosmic darkness line too I kind of think that ultimately what happens here is Red becomes a Black Skull himself. He ultimately does the same drugs that they do. He's wearing their armor by the end. He's driving their ATVs by the end. Like, 
he sort of becomes one of these black skulls by the end of the movie because I, I kind of think that, I mean, this movie is obviously about grief mm-hmm. and the process of trying to go through grief and, and, and get to the other side of it. And I think maybe what this movie is about is letting grief turn into rage mm-hmm. and, and then taking on that rage and finding out that something like vengeance is as hollow as the act that spawns it. There's nothing on the other side of it other than just becoming one of the Black Skulls yourself. Yeah, I, I think that it, it transforms him. Uh, I yeah. think that not only does he become sort of this scion of darkness, uh, yeah. as as he's referred to with this cosmic darkness by the chemist, um, mm-hmm. but like I said at the very, very beginning, there's that speech from Reagan where he talks about you know this mm-hmm. uh, spiritual reawakening, that this becoming a Black Skull, I think that that's a really good way of putting it, where... Um, he does put on their armor and stuff and basically becomes one of them to destroy them. Yep. It is a reawakening, just not a very nice one. <laughs> to me, what is interesting about this movie is I've come around to reading it as a tragedy of like this tragedy that happens to Mandy. That is then just a further tragedy that happens to Red. Mm-hmm. He, he dives headfirst back into his alcoholism. He, you know, right. I don't, I don't know that we're necessarily supposed to think any of what happens in that last hour is in any way heroic or good. Yeah. Yeah, he gets dragged down. Right. Yeah, it's I I it, this is the tragedy of Red and and what becomes of Red when he realizes there's nothing left and I do think that like this comes back into some of those sort of tiny images of of addiction and stuff where I wonder if perhaps uh, Mandy and Red had kind of a codependent relationship mm-hmm. where they, they both needed to escape something and they found each other to sort of uh, abscond into this like little fantasy world that they had together out in the middle of nowhere, you know? Makes a lot Going of sense to me. Going out to these, these lakes. And, but, but it is, co- at the end of the day, it is a codependency that upon the loss of her, he also loses himself, yeah, you know? Absolutely. I don't know. And, and I don't know if that's necessarily what, what Panos is, is trying to get at with his movie. You know, I, I think everybody experiences grief in, in very different and peculiar and particular ways. Well, I'm picking it up too, man. So, yeah. Well, I do think like, so one of my favorite thing to me, some of the best horror movies, you know, like uh, I know you did uh, an episode on The Shining with, with uh, Chase Williamson. To me, one of the things about The Shining that I love so much is that movie is basically, I always refer to it as a mirror. Mm-hmm. Whatever you go into it with is what it's going to reflect back to you. That's what you're going to think it's about. Right. And I think Mandy is one of those movies, too. It is so much about mood and atmosphere, not necessarily about its particulars and its specifics. And in in being that way, it just kind of, whatever anxiety you bring into the movie, I do think it's kind of going to reflect back at you. And that's a little bit what you're going to take away from it, right? Yeah. I think that when you mentioned before sort of this ineffectual man, pure bluster that Jeremiah Sand has, it's crazy to me in a very realistic way how quickly the bluster falls away. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, again, so funny too. Yeah. Uh, where he just offers to suck his dick eventually. <laughs> right, and I mean, for someone like Jeremiah, it's easy to see how this, for him, would be like the ultimate protestation yeah. and like humbling himself before Red, but Red has no such mercy and right. uh, kills him by crushing his skull. And Incredible. God, this moment of release where he just like cuts back and forth so many times, <laughs> building mm-hmm. tension. Mm-hmm. And then like the eyes and brain just gush out and red. Yeah, very like there. Lucio Fulci yeah. sort of uh, face explosion effects. Oh, yeah. And red just stands there panting. 
And it's such yeah. a release that not only does he he doesn't light a cigarette, he lights the whole goddamn church on fire. <laughs> yep, yeah. Uh, another great image of that church when it starts to collapse and oh, it does yeah. it in that very satisfying way mm-hmm. where each point of the triangle falls one at a time. So good. It is really good. And he watches San's body burn before driving away, flashing yeah. back to when he and Mandy first met, and then he envisions Mandy in the passenger seat of his car while he is just grinning like an absolute loon. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the Joseph Campbell phrase that he quotes, too, is there are different interpretations of what that means, but I think one of the generally accepted ones is just like there is a very thin line between the psychotic and the mystic. Right. 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 Um, and... Uh, Certainly Red has traversed and perhaps crossed that line rather rapidly. Yeah. He drives off into the distance, and uh, the landscape around him is now sort of this fantastical and otherworldly sort of landscape that um, would be very easy to picture in Mandy's artwork. So Yes, or uh, one of the fantasy novels that she right. likes to read. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the conclusion of his D&D quest. Right, right. It's really cool. And, uh, and so, Garrett, we've reached now the point where we sum up why this is the best horror movie ever. And so, I mean, we've definitely hit on a lot of great points, but why don't you give us a little summary? I don't know. I have to say this because I can't not say it. I know this is the premise of your podcast, but I have so much trouble with the term best. But what I do particularly love about this one is just, I don't know, this movie makes me, this movie literally feels like an actual spell that, that gets cast. Like, when, when my partner and I put it on yesterday to watch it, she was like, we just watched this like three months ago so you could write about it. I was like, I know, and I'm kind of feeling that too, but let's just watch it again. Within four seconds, we were like totally entranced. We didn't speak a word for two hours. This movie like is an actual spell that gets cast, and I think... Uh, I don't know. I'm not speaking to it as a horror movie, though. That's the thing I always come back to with this movie. It feels so much like it, it gets commanded by the Nick Cage performance and stuff and the Cage exploitation of it all that you don't even think of it as a horror movie. But I do think the sort of the, the horror of the tragedy of Red, where he, he, in my view, he becomes one of these black skulls. It's like that is that's true horror. That is the horror of real life, actually. That's not the supernatural horror that might exist in the fantasy of Mandy. That's the real horror of, like, we're all going to experience great loss at some point over our our time. If we're we're granted even a little bit of time here, we're going to experience some sort of great tragic loss. And that means we're going to have to face this cosmic darkness that Red has to confront, both in himself and the world at large, right? Um, And I, I think that's, like, a very real horror, and I like that this movie gets to it through things like imagery as opposed to trying to discuss those things, you know? Absolutely. I have no idea if that even was coherent. <laughs> no, I think it was coherent. I agree with that. That was what the most saying. Mandy answer about Mandy I possibly could have given. <laughs> well, we wouldn't have it any other way. It was way. just a strobing green light came out of my mouth while I was saying that. <laughs> To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because in addition to, uh, I think you're absolutely right, but it also, um, it does have these great horror moments where things are really grotesque and scary and upsetting, and it's a movie with texture to it, you know? it, it yeah. There's a nice film grain on it. I was going to say quite times. literally, actually, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But in addition to that, it has passion behind it it has a performance that a star performance that you can sink your teeth into but also really great supporting performances these great great lighting schemes that we talked about and all of this is propping up something that with one eye you can watch it with this great nick cage exploitation movie and with the other eye watch it with this incredibly sad story of and and like you said tragedy of this man falling to his demons literally and figuratively 
I, in my opinion, it's like truly a work of art, right? Yeah. And and I don't know. There's probably not a lot of uh, movies in general that I would necessarily categorize that way. But but this one, I don't know. It seems so clear to me that there's no other way to think about this movie. That this is one of those things. It's one of those once in a lifetime movies too, right? It's yeah. like how often does somebody like a Panos Cosmatos get to literally just empty their brain onto celluloid? Uh, it really feels that way. I think that that's part of what makes it feel like poetry to me. Like when I said yeah. it was a tone poem, that's not just yeah. because um, it has sort of these nebulous story moments, but I think right. that it genuinely does feel like poetry to me. Yeah, yeah. And and the marriage of like the, the sort of like impressionistic visuals and color schemes and mm-hmm. then the beautiful music that Johan composed. I want to make sure we, we say her name too, like Andrea Riseborough's performances, Mandy, oh, like... Yeah. Those things, like, it's the marriage of all those things and the sort of the brilliance of somebody like Cosmatos that's able to sort of synthesize those things into something like this. I mean, it's just remarkable, I think. Absolutely. I agree. And that is why this is the best horror movie ever made. Garrett, this was a ton of fun. Why don't you tell the people where they can find you if they want to hear more of that? Thank you. Uh, yeah, so I have a podcast called I Like to Movie Movie. Um, we're all over the internet. You can find us on iTunes and your, all your podcatchers and whatnot. And we're on like Twitter and Facebook and all those places, uh, usually at I Like to Movie. That's uh, the numeric two. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Filmadelphia. I'm on letterbox.com slash Filmadelphia, where I write about every movie I watch. Yeah, I think that's uh, cinema76.com. Uh, I write a lot over there as well. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. Um, there is a brand spanking new website that uh, now that I realize I say that um, at the time of airing will not be brand spanking new anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> nonetheless, uh, you can visit the new website at littlehorrorphl.com. Um, you can listen to the show right there. It has links to all the social places. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes if you're enjoying the show because it really does help. That's it for me. So thanks, everyone. Bye. Bone Tomahawk.